for their strength as they continue to serve in this world. So let's begin at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that, they, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let us open our Bibles again to, or turn in our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. At Mercy Church, I'm working through a series on Ecclesiastes. We've made it to chapter 8, and so that's what you're going to get today. A sermon from chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. Uh, a beautiful text, but also... I would argue a very difficult and challenging text. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs, right in the middle of the Bible. And we're going to begin at verse 8 of this chapter and go to the end. Right in the middle of the first paragraph we read, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his herd. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil for the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied to my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on, on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this, that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And may the Lord add his blessing to his word this morning, this afternoon. Loved ones in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I shared with you, I am working through a series on this book in uh, Mercy Church, and I've titled this series, Why Am I Here? What's the purpose of our life on earth? And I hope this afternoon that that question is actually not too difficult for you to answer. Whether you're young or you're old, if you're able to listen to me this afternoon, I think you should be able to answer the question, why are you here? Why did God plant you on planet earth? Well, the short answer to that is you're here to honor God. You're here to glorify God. You're here to praise and to worship him and to to love your neighbor as yourself, to do good to those around you. In fact, we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that those were prepared in advance for you to do. That's why you're here, to live out the life Christ has given you for his glory. I hope that's that's not new to any of you this afternoon. But yet there are questions in our Christian life that are difficult to answer. And I think all of you would agree with me that that's true. And in one particular theme where we find that it's quite difficult to answer questions is actually in the theme of of justice or injustice, of what's fair and not fair. You know, children at a very young age, or maybe they're just my children, but they could be yours as well. You know, when, you, when one child gets a present maybe a little bit bigger than the other child, or one gets to go to bed later than the other child, I don't know, this happens in our house. You all have perfect homes, I know. And then the child says, you know, that's not fair. That's not fair. And as parents, you hear that quite often because, you know, they're always measuring things according to what they think is fair, and obviously often as parents, we're just not that fair. And, and you respond to your child and you say, well, child, not everything is fair in this life. And then we go to bed at night, and we put that on a bigger canvas. We watch the news, and we see the injustice in the world and the suffering. We cry out to God, and we say, God, things don't seem to be fair. How is that fair that that person gets this or that? Or even in your own life, if you've dealt with intense suffering or loss. You see, that's the... The, the, the burden on the, on the teacher's soul. Now, we're talking about the teacher. He, in, in Hebrew, he's called the Koheleth. We think he's Solomon. You can call him the pundit. You can call him the preacher. You can call him a lot of different things. In Hebrew, it's the Koheleth. And he's actually teaching. He's giving us a lesson as, as a wise man who's, who's close to his death and reflecting back on life. And something that keeps coming back up in the book of Ecclesiastes is this reality that there's injustice in this world. That the oppressed keep getting more oppressed. And those who are the oppressor seem to get off scot-free. It's kind of what um, Job says in chapter 21 of Job, verse 7. He says, why do the wicked live, reach an old age, and grow in power? As Job is languishing with all his boils and loss in his life. That's the heart of the, of the teacher this, this afternoon. He's, he's saying this is, there's some things in life that are not fair. And what's beautiful about the book of Ecclesiastes is, is if you've read it and maybe you have in your life, you've realized it's quite a difficult book. <laughs> and what it does, it leaves you with more questions than answers sometimes. But we're left with those questions. 
You are as the listener, I am as the preacher, and somehow we're going to have to work through them seeking God's wisdom and counsel, not just from the pages of this book, which sometimes leaves us wondering, what, where exactly is the teacher going? But as we put it on the larger canvas of Scripture, we realize there are answers that help us. But the, but the theme that I have for you this afternoon is what happens as a Christian when, when questions go unanswered in your life? What happens as a Christian when questions go unanswered? And I want to consider three things as we consider that theme. The first thing is that, you know, there is tension. And somehow we have to learn to live with the tension. That not every question that you ask of the Holy One, even as you pour over Scripture, will be answered. And maybe not answered to your satisfaction. That there's going to be tension in your Christian walk. You know that. The second thing is, is, although there's tension in your Christian walk, you still need to fear the Lord. That's what the teacher Solomon is saying. And you need to enjoy life still as a gift from God. Those are my three points. There's tension. Still fear the Lord and enjoy his good gifts. The tension is here because something is unresolved. There's like a tug of war going on in the heart or the mind of the, of the teacher. And, and this is the tug of war that's happening in his mind. On the one side of this rope, you could say, is the idea that God, and it's true, that God is a just God. And, and, and the teacher knows that. He could be reflecting, for example, on Psalm 89, verse 14. It says, righteousness and justice are the very foundation of your throne. Now, we're talking about the throne of God. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. There is justice. God is a just God. Right now, he is being worshipped in glory by the angels, by the saints who have gone before us, as the just and true one. Ecclesiastes 15, verse 3 says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. This is, this is how God is worshipped right now. And we confess that one of the attributes of God is that he is just. It's his very character. He cannot do anything but what is just on earth. We confess that we have a just God. In fact, our justice and our justice system is derived from an absolute justice that we find in the person of God. Even our children, the idea of fairness is not drawn out of nowhere. That's because they're image bearers of the Holy One who is just. And so we get that. We all know that God is a just God. That's not new to most of us this afternoon. But here's the problem. It seems, from the Kohalist point of view, the teacher's point of view, that, that this just God lets the wicked, those who despise him, those who despise his laws, who couldn't actually care less whether there is a God or there isn't a God, who could be malicious, extremely malicious with their neighbor, cruel even, Engage in many different kinds of crimes. This is the injustice that they get to live a long time on the earth. Continually doing what they do best, which is evil. While the righteous, those who love God, who delight to do his will, who hate, fate, who hate evil, face an early death or a life of suffering. Does that seem fair? And you have to understand that this is in the context of the Old Testament. And in the context of the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament saints understood this reality that a long life was a symbol of God's blessing. 
And because if someone in their life was being stripped of their blessing and, and suffering, kind of like Job, or having an early life, their life was snatched from them, they would be seen as someone who was not fearing God or not righteous. Because that's how they understood the context of, of the, their relationship, this covenant relationship with God. That long life proved that God was blessing them. And so this is how the teacher begins in verse 12. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time. In some other translations, they, they say, although the, this wicked person has, does a, a hundred crimes, he still gets to live a long time. And then, and then it's like the teacher gets onto this, this thought of the, the wicked doing things and still living a long time. And he brings it right to head in verse 14, if you have your Bibles open. Verse 14 is, is, is just trying to capture that angst within his soul. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is a vanity. So what he's saying is that the righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. And for him, this, this doesn't compute. And he struggles so much with this that he says at the beginning of verse 14, this is vanity, this is meaningless, this is what they call in Hebrew, hevel, a vapor, incomprehensible. He says, he makes the statement, and he comes back at the other end of it and says, I want you to understand, I'm really confused by this. This is hevel, this is vanity. So he bookends just one verse with a double hevel, a double vanity. That's how confused he is by this reality, that the wicked get what the righteous deserve and the righteous get what the wicked deserve. He just can't understand it. The problem is, why, why does God, a God who is fair, why are his rewards and punishments not justly distributed out to both groups? Why does that not happen from a just God? Some of you might know, if you're kind of like middle-aged, the songwriter Billy Joel. He wrote a song many years ago, I think in the 80s. Some of you might know the song, Only the Good Die Young. I'm going to place my bets that when Billy Joel wrote that song, it was a, an attack against God's justice that he wrote this song. Because he says in the song, this, these words, he says, they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather, listen, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. And then the chorus, you know, you know that only the good die young. I tell you, only the good die young. Only the good die young. We're going to get back to that reality of the song. But do you feel the tension here? Billy Joel is touching a raw, raw nerve. And so is the teacher in Ecclesiastes. And here it is. The wickedness and the injustice that we witness in the world seems to flourish under God's careful watch while God's children suffer the blows of illness and early death and God does not seem to intervene. That's why only the good die young. 
God's not stopping that from happening. And some of you might have experienced some of this strain in your own life. As you walk with the Lord, as you've feared him, as you've done his will in your life by the grace that he's given you, and yet you're faced with constant suffering, constant struggle, even constant loss in your life. And you wonder, really? How does this compute? How do I work this out? As you look at your neighbor who's living it out with all the pleasures in the world and good health and age, there might be some dark comfort or some light comfort. I don't know how you'll take it. But the teacher is actually putting his finger on something that has existed since the fall into sin. This reality that although people are righteous, sometimes they lose their life at a very young age. I'm just going to share two stories, with, well, three actually, but very, very quickly, just to show you this picture. This is a reality that, that's a raw nerve, you could say, in Scripture. The first story after the fall is this exact point. Many of you children might know, even know the story, the story of Cain and Abel. Abel was a righteous man. We know that. Abel had a sacrifice to the Lord that the Lord approved of, that he liked. Abel was a young man. His brother Cain, his older brother, looked at Abel and he was jealous of Abel. And so he invited Abel to the field and he stabbed him or beat him to death. It would have been a gruesome death. And then Cain gets this nomadic reality, so he has to, he's a nomad now, but he gets to live a long time. It seems this picture of this reality that Billy Joel's capturing and the, and the raw nerve that, that, that the coherence is touching happens right at the very beginning of the Bible. Only the good die young. And Abel says, it's true. Or what about Naboth? Remember him? Naboth and King Ahab? The only problem that Naboth did, the only wrong thing he did, was not, it, was his, it wasn't even his fault, was that he was too close to the castle, too close to the palace of Ahab. And one day Ahab goes, you know what, I really like the vineyard that Naboth has. So he does something that's against God's holy covenant, and he goes to Naboth and he says, I want to buy your land. I'll give you a pretty sum. But Naboth knew God's will, and the will was that the land was dedicated to the family line, and it would be passing down through the family line. So Naboth said, stood up in faith and said, no, you can't do that. So Ahab goes home and goes into his room like a little sulking in his room. Jezebel, his wife, comes to him and says, what's wrong, Ahab? I want that land. Give me that land. So I'll get that land for you. She goes to see him, to Naboth. Well, she doesn't even go see Naboth. She finds up some guys who create up some wrong charges against him. They bring him to the city gate. He's falsely accused, and they stone him to death. And Ahab gets the land. Naboth dies an early death. Ahab, we learn, lives actually quite a long time after that. What about Jesus? 33 years of age, he was innocent. The righteous man par excellence. His life was cut short. Only the good die young. 
You see, if serving God does not guarantee a long life, and if serving God only ends your life in suffering and pain and difficulty, is this not complete hevel? Is this not complete vanity? Is this not completely incomprehensible? That's the tension. And that's the tension that the teacher lives with. But he doesn't end there. He says, still it is better to fear God in the midst of that tension. You need to fear the one who has made you and ultimately saves you. You see, in some sense, the teacher is providing two options here for the, for the reader, for the, for, the, for the people that he's teaching through his, through his teachings here. The one option, sadly, is to, is to reject God now. It's, it's to throw in the towel with those who, who don't believe God exists and, or deny his power or, or, or want nothing to do with him. It's kind of like the Billy Joels of this world. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than weep with the saints because there's no benefit in being a saint if the saints die young. And sadly, I know, and probably you do know, people who have taken that exit hatch. Said, I'm out. Count me out. There's too much suffering in this world to believe that there's a good God in control. I have friends, too many, who have exited the faith because of this. But there's a reason, loved ones, why millions and millions of people do not accept Billy Joel's solution. There's a reason why the teacher in, in the Ecclesiastes does not throw in his towel with the wicked and say, I'm not going to worship a God like that. And the teacher provides some clarity to why he doesn't do that in the rest of verse 12. He says, though a sinner does a evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. I just want, you to, draw, I just want to draw your attention to two words, I no. That's orthodox faith. When you know something. And that information informs your heart and informs your life. He's saying, I know. Although I don't understand this tension clearly, it's better for those to fear God. That means it's better to honor God yet. It's better to revere God. It's better to go to the house of God and close your mouth and worship him. And respect him. That you're saying you, you may have tough questions, but you need to have a proper view of God amidst the tough questions of your life. And for some of us, you know, because we default to this position sometimes, for some of us that means that we got to be stripped of this idea that God's some kind of genie in the sky, and if we rub it the right way, if we do the right things, God should just pour out blessings on us and take away every element of the curse has befallen humankind. You, know, you can't pin the Holy One down like that. He's not a genie in the sky. He's an awesome, sovereign king of this universe whose will and purposes far exceed our human limited perspective. I love Psalm 115, though. It's a very difficult song. Psalm 115 says this, asks this question, which is what our neighbors are asking as well, who do not believe in the Holy One. They say, why do the nations say, where is their God? 
It's the Billy Joel. Why would you worship a god if the good die young? But this is how 115 answers that question. And this is what we hold on to, especially as Reformed believers who hold to the sovereignty of God in all things. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. His perfections are not affected by our opinion, and nothing in the world could come to pass unless he first decreed it. You can't pin him down like that. And the teacher continues. He wants to bolster his opinion, his, his count on this. He says, the wicked, not verse 13, the wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. And so he has this tension because he says, well, you know, you, don't be fooled here. Don't be so, so sure that those who despise God have it all together. Just because they're behind closed doors and the house looks really nice and they drive a nice car, it doesn't mean they have it all together. Don't be so sure it's better to laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Don't be so sure that that's a true statement. Because Proverbs 10 verse 16 says, The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 says, It's mine to avenge. This is the Holy One speaking. I will repay, and in due time their foot will slip whether it's 30 years, 60 years, or 100 years, if they do not turn to the Almighty in repentance, their foot will slip. And that's an eternal slip. That's into the jaws of hell. If you want a sermon on that text, you can Google Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. One of the most famous sermons ever preached is on that verse. In due time, their foot will slip. Don't be so sure. It's better to laugh with this laugh with the sinners and cry with the saints. It will go better for those who fear the Lord. But I ask you this afternoon because attention is real. Do you believe that? Did it go better for Naboth? Did it go better for Ahab? Sorry, not Ahab. Abel? What about Christ? You see, the answer is found in what ultimately Naboth and Abel and all the faithful in the Old Testament were living for. You have to understand that if you live for pleasure as your ultimate end and then you're snatched from the, that end, yes, it's better to laugh with the sinners than weep with the saints. If, if your ultimate end in life is just the pursuit of pleasure... It didn't go well for Naboth and Abel. It won't go well for you either. If you serve the Lord with that as your end goal. That's hevel. That's meaningless. No. Abel already at a very young age, and I pray the youth are like Abel, and Naboth, as he was probably an older man, realized that they were created to worship God come what may. They were also created to worship a God, and they knew that they were fallen, broken people. That's why they were doing the sacrifices, at least Abel was, because they were promised a Messiah who would come that would ultimately put an end to the curse that had befallen mankind. And they were waiting the day when the, when the king of all creation would come down and, and come down as a man and crush the head of the serpent. They were longing for the day of their redemption. 
They're waiting for the desire of the nations. They are waiting upon God's mercy to redeem their lives and their souls, even for all eternity. That's what they were waiting for. That was their great expectation. And you see, Abel needed and Naboth needed and you need today exactly the same thing. You need not only to understand God's justice in all of this, you need to understand that God, the God of justice, also a God of mercy. And he makes promises to his people. And, there's, and, and the whole Old Testament is pregnant with hope that this promise, that there would be ultimate, an ultimate solution to the problem of sin, the problem of death, the problem of evil, would finally come to fruition. That was the longing. That's what they lived for. So although Abel was cut down in the prime of his life, and although Naboth was probably cut down in the prime of his life, they were fearing a God who is just and who is also merciful. And all of that would culminate at the cross of Christ who was cut down when he was a young man where justice, God's justice was meted out and God's mercy shone like a brilliant light and brought life. That's what they were waiting for. That's what we have to live for. There is a God who is to be feared because he is a God of promise, because he is a God of mercy, and because he is the God of the cross, because that cross brings us life. The teacher did not understand all this, but I tell you, he is forcing the issue. When you deal with injustice, you need to have someone who's going to deal with the injustice. When you deal with evil, you're going to have to have someone who deals with evil, and that ultimately all happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. In his deep longing for redemption in the midst of this cloud of what seems to be incomprehensible, we have a teacher, we call him the Kohaleth, we think he's Solomon, who's standing by faith. And in the midst of his angst, in the midst of his questions, he says, it's still better to fear God. And I hope you can say exactly the same thing in the midst of your tears and your struggle. Let me close with this. And not only do you fear him, he's calling out that we should also enjoy his gifts. I think this is beautiful. He says in verse 15, and I'm going to close with this. He says, and I commend you, sorry, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. I charge you. In the sight of God, he says, to be joyful. I charge you in the sight of God to enjoy the gifts that God has given you and the simple gifts even, the gift of food and the gift of drink and, and the gifts of the things that you get to do. Enjoy them. I, I, find this, I found this remarkable. In fact, he has come back to this reality of eating and drinking and enjoying the pleasures that God has given you uh, three or four times. In this book, this is the third time, the fourth time will be in the following chapter, even calling men and women to enjoy their, their spouse. This is a thousand years before the cross, before evil was dealt a fatal blow, before the Satan, Satan's head was crushed and death was conquered. This is happening a thousand years before that, and he still says, but I still want you to enjoy life. 
Why? Why can he say that? Why can he call the Israelites, in the midst of all this injustice, to still enjoy life? For this reason, he understands that God is still in control. He understands that God still has the final word. It's like Jesus in Matthew 6, where he says, do not worry about tomorrow. God will care about tomorrow. You have enough troubles of today. So enjoy today. Live in the present. Enjoy the blessings that God has given you, trusting that he has you and trusting that he has tomorrow. So hard for us to live in the present, but that's exactly what God is calling us to do. To enjoy that latte, to enjoy that freshly brewed maple syrup, which is in the maple syrup season. To enjoy that, enjoy that pizza, that, even that Big Mac. It's not too often. Why can you enjoy your Big Mac? Why can you enjoy those dinners that you have and the drinks that you have, that glass of wine in the evening? Why can you enjoy that? Because God is on his throne. He's in control. Everything you have is a blessing from him, so enjoy those blessings. Even the pleasure that you get from eating and drinking is a gift from God. And yet you need to realize that that's true. And God wants us to enjoy the gifts that he has given us. And he has given us many gifts. You need to understand, of course, that those aren't ultimate, that's not ultimate joy. It's a temporary joy. And he puts that into perspective by saying what he's going to say in the final part of this verse, verse 15, the last part of the verse, he says, For this will go with him in his toil, through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So he just, he limits the amount, the potentiality of the joys that you can get under the things of this world. Why? Because you're still going to die. It's a limited joy. And you still have to toil. You still have to work long hours. So it's limited. But there's another reality going on here, and I think... You need to cap- I need to capture this for you, or maybe help you capture this. And that's this. That the joy that we get from food, and the joy that we get from drink, and the pleasures that we have, cannot be ultimate joy. In fact, the scripture teaches us very, very clearly that if you make food or drink, or the pleasures you have, sexuality, whatever the case is, you make those ultimate joy. Factors for ultimate joy. If you try to find all the pleasure in life from the things that God has given you, from the material things that God has given you. If you say, that's where I'm going to find my ultimate joy, I'm going to tell you right now, and you know it to be true, that you'll become slaves to those pleasures. That's where you get addictions. That's where you get sexual infidelity. That's where you get um, gluttony and slothfulness and a lot of other sins. Because people are taking God's good gifts and pushing them to the place of ultimate joy. That's idolatry. Nothing suffocates and destroys the soul more than idolatry. That's not what he's saying here. Actually, what he's saying here is that you need to realize the limitation of those pleasures. Enjoy them, but realize their limitation. And what the teacher is doing, he's pressing against the door of greater joy. 
He's pressing against the, joy, the door where joy needs to be ultimately found. And it will not be in your house. It will not be in your car or the glass of wine you have at night. And that's what Jesus is praying about in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying about joy. But notice he says nothing about food and drink. John 17, verse 13, he says, But now I'm coming to you, talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world. Here it comes, that th speaking the truth, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Or another translation, so that the, they may have the full measure of my joy within them. This full measure of joy that he's talking about is not in the abundance of food you have or the abundance of drinks or the beauty of your home or the niceness of your car. That's not an ultimate joy. It could be a penultimate joy. It's not an ultimate joy. And don't make it an ultimate joy. Where's the ultimate joy? It's found in the one who left the prayer room, went to the garden, walked to the cross, struggled to even carry the cross because he was flogged so badly and hung on that cross, carrying the burden of God's wrath against our sin as it was meted out on him, crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? in order to secure our joy. It comes at a price. So what's that joy then? What's the joy I commend to you this afternoon, which Solomon could not commend to you fully? This is the joy that you are totally satisfied in Jesus Christ as your highest treasure, that he is your joy. That you realize that you are loved by the, infinite, the infinitely just and holy God who has taken away your sins and has declared you righteous so your past is totally cleaned. And you walk before God now as a declared righteous man or woman. This joy is knowing that you have a friendship with Jesus Christ that even death cannot break. And that's why Paul can say in chapter 8 of Romans, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. The joy is realizing that whether you're well-fed or hungry, rich or poor, healthy or suffering, a chronic or terminal illness, when you have Christ, you have ultimately all you need. He is where the joy is. And this joy is knowing that one day you will sit down at the greatest banquet table that the world and the universe has ever seen. It will be the finest table, and you will be supplied food and drink that will not only satisfy your lips and your belly, but will satisfy your soul. Because it will be given to you by the Savior of your soul. It's in that joy that we face the unanswered questions. It's in that joy that we would rather weep with the saints than laugh with the sinners. Amen.